Welcome to the Doctority Plastic Surgery Podcast. My name is Jenna, and in this series, I'll be speaking to plastic surgery residents and giving you an inside look at what it's like to train at their institution. We'll discuss the logistics, the leadership, and the lifestyle of a plastics resident at their program. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Michael Barada and Dr. Ying Wu, who are residents at Dartmouth-Hitchcock Medical Center in Lebanon, New Hampshire. Mike is a fifth-year resident. He's originally from Naples, Florida. He went to undergrad at the University of Florida, got a master's degree at Florida Atlantic University, and completed medical school at Florida State University. He completed some general surgery at the Mayo School of Graduate Medical Education in Florida before transferring to Dartmouth. His academic interests include general plastic surgery, aesthetic plastic surgery, and Mohs reconstruction. Ying is a second-year resident. He's originally from Rockville, Maryland. He went to undergrad and medical school at the University of Maryland, and his academic interests include craniofacial and microsurgery and general plastics. Mike, Ying, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having us. So I'd love to get started with a broad overview of the structure of your program at Dartmouth. So we are an integrated program. We've had some recent changes in our structure. We were originally a fellowship after general surgery and a three plus three, meaning three years of gen surge, three years of plastic surgery. The three plus three route does not exist anymore in the nation. And our last three plus three resident graduated a couple of years ago, and he's finishing up fellowship this year. And then our fellowship program, which has been around for a long time, is also being uh, phased out. We are in our last year of our fellow. So he is technically a PGY-8, though he's our chief, essentially a PGY-6 here. And he will be the last fellow to graduate from Dartmouth-Hitchcock. And then I am a PGY-5 integrated, so I will be the first technical integrated resident to graduate. And year after that, I will be integrated residents only. So we will have a full integrated class as of next year. We have a full class now, but one of them is technically a fellow. And how many residents do you take per year? We do one a year. We have no prelims or anything like that in our program. We do have prelims through the general surgery residency program here at Dartmouth-Hitchcock. So we get them sometimes, but we get more often the PGY-1 interns from all the other subspecialties. So ortho, urology, ENT, they all come to us to do plastics. And can you break down how much plastic surgery experience you get across the first three years, preferably like months per year? In terms of, since I started as a PGY-1 integrated plastic surgery, I got a total of five months my first year. So we did four months at the main uh, Dartmouth-Hitchcock Hospital, which is where we do all of our major reconstructive procedures. And I did an additional month at the VA Medical Center where we do smaller bread and butter cases, a lot more hand over there, as well as a couple of breast reductions and paniculectomies, although most of our cases at the VA are more like smaller cases and excisions, I would say. In my second year, I do five months at the main hospital and then one month at the VA, so six months total, so five, six, and then in my third year, I'll do, I think, seven months of plastic surgery total, six plus one. So we do one one month at the VA each year, our first three years, and I just tack on an extra month. So it comes out to about like like half of your time as a PGY one through three is devoted to like plastic surgery, and the remainder is like subspecialty services. And what's the experience been like when you've been on some of the non-plastics rotations? I think they've been really great. All I, I think one of the th- draws of the Dartmouth-Hitchcock plastic surgery program are, is that we have like really good relationships with all our consulting services. I'm still very close friends with a lot of the general surgery residents, 
We rotate on ENT, ortho, all the ones that are required by ACGME. But I thought that none of the rotations were particularly malignant. And because there's only one integrated plastic surgery resident every single year, getting the chance to rotate on other services allows you to branch out a little bit and make connections with other specialties and general surgery. So you build like social connections outside of just the plastic surgery program. And so you mentioned you spend time at your main hospital and then the VA. And can you talk a little bit about if there are any other sites and kind of the differences in the patient population? So most of your work is at Dartmouth-Hitchcock, which is one big hospital here in Lebanon, New Hampshire. You do the VA, which I haven't done yet, but I'm going to do it this year. You did that. And then as you progress in your later years, so your fifth and sixth year, you do away rotations offsite. So this year, I'm going to be going in January to LA for USC, LA County Hospital for a burn rotation for a month. Technically, we don't do like level one high trauma burn here. We do small burns. The biggest one would be like Boston is the closest center, but we have had a connection with USC for a long time. So we go out there for a month. So I'll do that in January. And then I go to the VA this year. And then next year, when you're sixth year, you do multiple rotations, which have been messed up a little bit with COVID, unfortunately. But traditionally, what we would do is you go for a month to Maine in Portland and you do it's called Maine Med and you do a whole month with the private practice there, which is supposed to be an awesome rotation. You get amazing experience. It's very busy, but you get to do a lot of like private practice, plastic surgery on top of some academic stuff. And then you go to the Baker Gordon conference in Miami, I believe in February for a few days, which is a really big, amazing conference where they do live surgery. And it's some of the greatest aesthetic surgeons in the world that are showing their techniques and skills. And then that is piggybacked onto a two-week rotation with Susan in Miami for uh, cosmetic surgery. And then you're also supposed to go to Vietnam with Dr. Rosen, who's one of our plastic surgery slash hand peripheral nerve experts. And you do two weeks of uh, cleft lip, palate, congenital hand, big cases with patients that are underserved and wouldn't have these surgeries otherwise. Those are kind of the big ones you do outside of Dartmouth. We have a couple of attendings who do work in Manchester. There's been discussions about potentially going out there in the future. We haven't gotten that to work yet, and COVID's also slowed those discussions down, but that would be another potential, I think, site in the future to get more kind of an aesthetic, cosmetic allotment to our education, but those are the big ones that are established right now. I think the hardest one would be Vietnam with COVID just because of the international travel restrictions that keep going on, but technically we're supposed to go there for two weeks in our sixth year. Do you know if the cases you do there are counted towards your case log? And do you have to use your vacation time for that? So you don't use vacation time at all. And my understanding is they do count towards your case logs. But I have not done the rotation, so I don't I haven't logged anything. But you definitely don't use your vacation time for that. That's part of your curriculum. Do residents ever have the opportunity to do an additional short trip or an elective global month? Yeah, so actually, I've talked to Dr. Shin, he's the program director here about that specifically, because my Dad actually works as a surgeon. He's a transplant surgeon in China, and he's pretty well affiliated with some of the plastic surgeons over overseas. Dr. Shin and I are working to coordinate a possible two-week or maybe even one-month um, rotation for me as when, when I'm a more senior resident so that I can get more out of that rotation. I think it'd be really interesting. But th- there's certainly some flexibility designed into the curriculum that sort of allows for us to explore 
our various interests. I know Mike in particular, you did like a month of Mohs reconstruction with dermatology, right? We do derm and the derm is technically offsite also, but it's right down the road at Heater Road facility. They have their own building. And I did, I was technically supposed to be a derm rotation with everything. And it ended up being like half derm general than half Mohs because of the way stuff worked out. But it was great because I just did like Mohs for two weeks, like straight and just did recon and got to see them resect and do the pathology and all that. So I wanted to go back to Mayo for a rotation because they have a really robust aesthetic surgeon down there that I'm close with. He's one of my mentors. And we had talked for a while about trying to work out a month to visit them. And Dr. Shin was all for it. And we were going through the process, but this was pre-COVID. And then with COVID, it's been hard to do any interdisciplinary like, new projects. So it's been put on the back burner. But I will say that when we were discussing it and it seemed like a possibility, Dr. Shin was all for it. I don't know if it's going to happen with what's going on now, but it was something that was on the table and we had been discussing it seriously. So he's open to these ideas. It's just, I think it depends on what's going on with, unfortunately, COVID. So it definitely sounds like those kind of electives can be arranged. Are there like official elective blocks or elective months, or it's more if you bring up an interest, you can usually arrange your schedule to make one work? There's no technical month for an elective, but I think it's, they're just open to like our thoughts. And so we could, you know, potentially down the road have that. There's not one in stone right now, but they're not against discussions about something like that. And then, so it sounds like you mentioned you have at least like about a month and a half of full-time aesthetic experience. Are there any other times that you do aesthetic rotations? Are there intermittent cases and, or is there a senior resident cosmetic clinic? The way that we do our like rotations here when you're on plastics is when you're on plastics, you're basically on everything plastic. So we don't set you with an attending for a month. We do sometimes say, okay, you're on a hand plastics rotation or you're on like a craniofacial rotation. And then if there's craniofacial cases or hand cases, you're the one that should go to those. But for the most part, like when you're on plastics, you're on everything plastics. So one day you could be doing a free flap for a lower extremity. The next day you could be doing an aesthetic case. And the day after that, you should be on three BBRs. So it's like a big mix. And the aesthetic cases, they're intermittent. I'd say we don't do like aesthetics on like a daily basis and it's not the most robust thing we do by any means. And usually the seniors get like first dibs on the big aesthetic cases. We try to bring everybody in. This past week I was on anesthesia, but I, there was a true aesthetic breast dog that happened on Friday that I went into to, to join him. I got to do a breast dog with Dr. Shankran and our chief. And then there was also, Ying was part of a bilateral thigh lift, whole body liposuction case that same day. We do aesthetic surgery. There was a month, a few months ago, we had five facelifts in one month, and then we haven't had many since, but we have these like waves of cases and they're just mixed in with all other stuff. So it's not like a dedicated aesthetic rotation here as of now, but throughout your six years, you will get experience and exposure to it. I also think those numbers have been diluted a bit because of COVID canceling elective cases. So um, I've only been here for about a year and a half, but so my experience may be a little bit different. I'm also like more junior. With that being said, I think it should probably be taken into account as well. They've definitely had an issue with elective cases and what we can and can't do. And things got better after the initial COVID waves, but we're obviously in a different environment now with Omicron and everything else. So there's, you know, lots of discussion on what to do, but I think it would be more robust if we didn't have concerns for that. And is there like a senior cosmetic clinic? No, technically there's not a, a senior cosmetic clinic, really just the seniors get the dibs on. If there's multiple aesthetic cases, they get to choose what they want to do. And they usually do, like I said, the big ones. We 
do a filler slash Botox clinic. It's supposed to be every three months. It's been roughly almost every four months, I'd say the last year or so, but we're supposed to do it quarterly and we get free product or samples from the pharmacy, from the, from Allergan or whoever and mentor, you know, people like that. And we get patients, we recruit them ourselves and then they come in and we do usually one filler and then one Botox patient during that session each. Usually the three, four, five, and six do those clinics quarterly. And do you get any experience with gender affirmation surgery? Dr. Green and Dr. Shin, I would say, are probably our two surgeons who do, do the most. Dr. Shin does a lot of the gender-affirming female-to-male mastectomies. Dr. Green, does both top and bottom surgery in the past year. This is also partially diluted because of COVID, because of the elective nature of a lot of these procedures. But even though I'd say... Anytime I'm on, the, I'm on the plastic surgery service, I'd say we had been getting on average probably one major bottom surgery probably every three weeks. But I know that because I've talked to Dr. Green about this personally as well. There's actually quite a long line of patients waiting to get bottom surgery that we just simply haven't scheduled. They're just waiting for, for an operation. And part of the reason they haven't gone yet is because of COVID and the limited numbers of beds available. We have done both F to M as well as M to F. I think we did two phalloplasties within the last year and a half with Dr. Greeny. Two, I think, different techniques. He did like a radial forearm for one, and then a pedicled ALT with a radial forearm, like urethral reconstruction for another. So essentially like a pedicled flap with a microsurgery, <laughs> kind of two for one. I don't know if you were there for that one, Mike. And I'd say we do a lot of depth vaginoplasties. Dr. Moses is one of the urology attendings who, who usually does those cases a Dr. Greeny. He just did a zero-depth vaginoplasty last week, actually. Did another one maybe three weeks ago that I actually helped Dr. Greeny with. So even as like a two, I've like first assisted because like you can only get one or two bodies. And a lot of the time, some days we have five, six attendings operating all at once and plenty of opportunities for junior residents to first assist on bigger cases. I harvested the fibula with Negrini, this other big case we did just last week. So we do a ton of top surgery. We're two hours from Boston, but we're like rural in the woods. So I always find interesting the amount of people that we get for transgender with kind of the population that we have. We're by Dartmouth undergrad college. So it's a mix of different people here. We have really highly educated communities. And then there's like people that like live off the land in the woods. But we have no shortage of people who want transgender surgery. We do a ton of top surgery like every week. We're doing a lot of bottom surgery. And Dr. Moses, in connection with Dr. Negrini, are actually working on making almost like a center of excellence, I guess you could say, for transgender surgery here. And they're, they've been actively working on a plan to have a transgender clinic, I think, once every two weeks where they dedicate either a half a day or a whole day to just transgender patients. And they see them essentially together on the same day and make a plan because these patients take a lot of planning and a lot of prep work. You know, when you want to do bottom surgery, a lot of times it takes up to a year to get them prepared for the real surgery because you have to do laser hair removal. That takes time. You have to do uh, urethral lengthening. There's lots of like pieces in between to get them to the real big surgery. So there's a lot of work and a lot of people involved. There's a lot of uh, social case stuff to deal with, a lot of psych stuff. You need to have certain letters in place, certain hormone therapy, endocrine people involved. So there's a lot of things to balance. And that's why it's important to have a big team to work together. So they're working on actively making a clinic just and blocking off the rest of their schedule just to dedicate to transgender patients for, I think, a day or a half a day every two weeks. Can you walk me through what call is like? So as far as intern call goes, 
your entire first year as an intern, you're in the general surgery call, call pool, so you're not taking any dedicated plastic surgery call. And at first, though that may sound pretty horrendous, it actually works out in our favor because it allows us to not have to take primary like annoying floor pages as a PGY2 and above. But the way we do it is we split up all the surgical services in half. So general surgery, there's an intern on call for general surgery and an intern on call for subspecialty surgery, essentially 24 hours, like all the time. There's always intern coverage. And for the subspecialty services, we cover vascular surgery, ENT, orthopedics, uh, urology, and ENT. So those are the surgical services that we cover on at night. On weekdays, I think the patient census can be as high as, I don't know, 40 to 50, uh, maybe on average on weekends. When patients are discharged, maybe 30 to 40 on average. And the way that call works is you start taking calls. So you're on for a month as a plastics integrated intern. We only do one month of night float. So you're on Sunday evening from 6 p.m. Um, till 6 a.m. Uh, Monday the next morning. And you're on until Thursday evening into Friday. And then there's another two interns who are on call. Someone covers a Friday, Sunday, and a Saturday. Another person covers a Saturday, 24, if that makes sense at all, for, for those same services. That sort of goes on for an entire year. And you're probably on a weekend call, maybe like once every two or three weeks as an intern. And you're only on the, the night rotation for an entire month. So that's pretty much how intern call works. So I did two years of Gen Surge call, which was pretty, very grueling. There was a lot of call, a lot of patients. You were taking patient phone calls, floor calls, transfer calls, surgery, ED, consults, all of it. So when I came here, it was very different. So as a PGY2, you start taking what we call buddy call with the rest of the seniors. So Ying just finished his buddy call a few months ago. And depending on how you do, it ends earlier or later if you feel comfortable with you doing it on your own. But basically, you're paired with a senior. So like this year, Ying was paired with me and we would be on call together or with the chief resident, Chris, and we would just alternate back and forth. And what would happen is we would get a consult. They would page Ying first. Ying and I would go and see it in the beginning, talk about what, what we thought to do. It was a procedure. I would be there with Ying, helping him, guiding him through whatever we needed to do. If I felt he was doing on his own fine. I would just let him go run wild. And then if I felt like I need to regroup or like tell him a, a trick or a tip, I would do it. And then as we progressed, you know, we got more comfortable. He showed that he could handle it. He would do stuff on his own. And then he would basically call me if there was like any question. He would tell me what was going on. And I would say, that sounds good. Or if there was any issues or towards the end, we had this big lip lack that he was like, I don't think I want to do this on my own. I was like, great, I'll come in. And I came in, we did it together. Turned out great. But so we have this system where you start evolving into a, a senior resident but you're not cut loose immediately you're on like a bungee cord and we let you drop but then we catch you and then eventually we cut it and we're like okay you're good to go you don't need another person with you and so ying transitioned into his more senior role in call at least in november i believe and so he takes his own call now i take my own call and when we take call it's usually one day a week generally speaking sometimes it's nothing during the week sometimes it's two days a week depending on how many people are on service only because we're a small service, we're only one person per year and we do off-service rotations. But unless you're away physically, you can still take call with us. So I'll be at the VA in February, but I'm still going to take call with Plastics. But I will be in California in January, so I won't be taking any call then. So I'm out of the call pool. But we do, on average, about one in four weekends a month, which is amazing. Sometimes it's one in three. Sometimes it's one in five or six. It just depends. But I say our call generally is not 
terrible for the amount of days you do. It's one turn in the week and one weekend during the month, I would say is average. When you're on call, you take patient phone calls, which can be nothing or it can be, you know, multiple, depending on what's going on. If the service had a ton of surgeries that week, you could get a couple. I'm on this weekend and I had, I think, one call last night total and it was at like nine o'clock and that was it. It was a patient phone call. You do take ED consults and floor consults. If they call you in the middle of the night for something, it could be something you have to go in for and fix like a laceration or it could be, so let's say an orbital fracture that doesn't need to be seen till the morning or something that can be delayed because it's not an emergent situation and you just field it the next day. You do take transfer center calls. The floor is covered by the intern, which is great. So you're not getting called in the middle of the night for Tylenol, for patients wanting little minor things. They do call you if there's a problem. If they say, oh, they're tachycardic and they're having a fever, they'll call you and you'll be like, okay, this is what you need to do to the intern. But overall, you just kind of take the big stuff and the consults. And I'd say we have a very good system for call. It's very fair. We do work holidays, but the holidays are spread out between everybody. So you don't work I think you work one major holiday a year and one minor. So even that's like amazing. This year I'm working Christmas. I have Thanksgiving and New Year's off. It's can't really complain. We primarily cover Dartmouth-Hitchcock, but as Mike had mentioned, we do take transfer center calls. So Dartmouth-Hitchcock is, I think, the only level one trauma center in the Northeast. The one further south is like Boston. I don't know if Maine's like a level one, but my understanding is that most of the complex like reconstructive stuff still comes down to us. So within probably a two and a half, three hour driving distance radius all the way up to Canada to here, we cover that territory. Transfer center calls can be a little tedious. Most of the calls that we get are usually like within a one hour, maybe one hour, 30 minute driving distance radius. If like someone comes in with a hand fracture or whatever that needs to be transferred that they can't handle because they don't have like hand specialists at their local small community hospital, they'll transfer over to us. So th- those are the types of transfer center consults we get, and they it can vary depending on the season and time of year. And the other thing I would say to add on what Mike had said is, in terms of the the way that the call is split, we split hand call. I'd say we take a little bit more hand call than ortho does at our hospital, probably sixty six thirty three roughly, and then base call is every other day. So it's like clockwork. Like we're on today, they're on tomorrow. ENT. So that one's fifty fifty. Hand gets. A- a little bit tricky, but it's supposed to be 50-50. The only thing is that we have more plastic surgery attendings who take hand call. So that's the only reason why I said we probably, it might not be like two to one, but I I feel like it does feel like we take slightly more because we have more, I think they have two hand. They have three, but one of them doesn't take call. Our, one of our attendings, Dr. Negrini, technically takes ortho hand call. So when he's on call with hand, a lot of times he's with the ortho residents. So we don't actually cover those calls, which kind of relieves us from that duty. And I will say also, we do not do replants, which can be torture, I think, for residents sometimes at big centers. Replants go to Boston. I had a situation recently with a, with a kid that needed a replant. And so I sent them right away to Boston. And then we also, like I said, don't do big burns. So we do small, oh, drop some coffee, got a, a one or a two type burn. But when I do big burn, we don't do hands, penis, vagina, perineum. Like if stuff like that happens, they go to another center to Boston because we just don't cover that. So that also, I think, frees up a little bit of our call because I know like for replant, that takes a lot of time out of your call. And if you get called in for a replant, that's a big case. And what is your mid-level support like? I think it's phenomenal. 95% of the time, we always have one advanced uh, practice provider, like in either an APRN or a PA who works with us on the floor helps us uh, take care of and manage all the floor things along with an intern. So we have an intern on service as well as 
an advanced practice provider on pretty much all year round. So usually two people to help out with floor stuff. And sometimes we have double intern coverage, but uh, at the very least, we always have at least one intern on and almost always a mid-level provider as well. And they do, some days when things do get really hectic, say we have three plastic surgery residents on call and five or six attendings operating at the same time, they do help out a lot in terms of covering ORs. But uh, that being said, I would say that all integrated plastic surgery residents get first dibs in all cases. And our relationship with our mid-level provider is a very synergistic one, I would say. There's no antagonism when we go cover cases with our attendings, and our own attendings also prefer to have residents in their cases if possible. So that's just the expectations, and all our mid-level providers understand that. But they do greatly facilitate cases where we may need extra help suturing, like bilateral breast reductions, paniculectomies, and things like that. Like Mike was saying, we did like a bilateral medial thighplasty and a ton of liposuction. So having all hands on deck that day was very helpful in terms of helping us move everything along. I will say, I think I have the benefit of coming from somewhere else where I've seen different things. And so having APPs is like a godsend. It is having not just one is amazing, but having more than one and knowing that you're going to have for the most part an APP or two each day is a huge benefit and weight off your shoulders. And you got to remember, like, these APPs are not residents, like, they're salaried. So you can't treat them in a way that, like, you don't want to disrespect them. You don't want to make them overwork. You want to like, treat them well because you want them to help you. And they're also, like, our friends, like, so they're our colleagues and our friends, and we, like, enjoy being with them. But they provide so much assistance that allows you to actually operate. And I can tell you when I was at Mayo, I was doing a lot of the, I was the first and second year, which is not unexpected, doing a lot of the floor work and the notes. And I still had to operate, but it was very hard to, I feel like learn to be a surgeon because I was so worried about the ancillary floor work on top of operating here. Like I operate and my concentration is on operating and I'm learning to be a surgeon, a plastic surgeon, because I do not have that in the back of my mind. You always worry about stuff on the floor, but in the back of my mind, I'm not like thinking about how many notes I have to write today or how many orders I have to put or how many discharges I have to do because we have that help. All of us, for the most part, can go to the OR and work as surgeons and that weight is off our shoulders. So I think it's amazing that the program's really pushed to get APPs in the last, I'd say, five years. Before that, they didn't really have any APPs at all in plastics here, working with residents. So there's been a big push, and it's been like a huge benefit to the program. I think it really helps everybody involved. Yeah, and I'll just echo that same sentiment that Mike said. I don't have the benefit of having had that added perspective, but I can tell you as a PGY2, and even as an intern, it's phenomenal. Like round on patients in the morning, we divvy up the list. Occasionally, I'll write a progress note. I'd say 90% of the time, I just go and pre-op my patients, and then I'm literally just thinking about the operation or learning how to be a surgeon that day. As an intern, I would say I divvied up the notes with our mid-level providers, and as soon as I finished all the notes and we divvied up the floor tasks, as soon as I got all that done, I was in the OR by 8.30, and occasionally I would hold a pager, but they're also phenomenal about, listen, you're in the OR today, just do that. I'll hold a pager. And during the day, they'll help see consults as well. If it's a more complicated procedural consult, sometimes they'll pull out, hold off a little bit and wait for one of the more senior plastic surgery residents to come and evaluate the wound. But they'll usually be really good about staffing those consults like while we're in the operating room and things like that. Like Mike said, they make our lives so much better and we have great working relationships with them. And we do have three currently. We just hired another one. 
So we're going to have four. Uh, Allison works part-time, and she is pretty much in clinic Monday through Fridays, and she helps the attendings lighten that load a little bit. And then we have three other APPs who do some clinic. We always have at least one of them on the floor Monday through Friday as well. We're spoiled. I can say that for sure. One of our APPs, Matt, comes in once a month and helps out on the busiest weekend. So if we have like a hand face weekend, he'll try to come in for that weekend to help the senior residents on top of potentially having either an intern or med students helping out too. So we have this weekend that I'm on a no-no, which is great. And I don't have any with me, but like many weekends I have somebody with me. So they help me get the tasks done. So it's not like I'm here all day stuck at the hospital, which is amazing. Can you talk about how your program manages resident operative autonomy? And sometimes one nice way to illustrate that is by going through what each PGY level would do in something like a D. I'd say it's very attending dependent, for sure. I think they all want you to to get to a point where like you do your own side or the case. You put people in cases that you think they can handle. So you put the juniors in smaller cases, skin excisions, breast reductions, things like that. And then as you get more senior, you get more trusting of people around you. You start putting them in bigger cases like the free flaps. That being said, each case has its own challenges. So for example, like a BBR, that's a good case for a junior because there's a ton of suturing that needs to be done. And so maybe the attending will do the dissection or you'll do it with them. And then you'll do the suturing and help close the breast in the beginning. And then honestly, within, I'd say, the first six months to a year, you're doing the dissection on your side and they're helping you to the point where you're doing it on your own. So like now when I do a BBR, I walk in, prep the patient, drape them, and then I do my side. Like I don't ask them any questions. I talk to them the whole time, but I don't ask for help. They don't touch my side unless they think there's a problem. Usually it's not a problem because it's a BBR and they're not, for the most part, that challenging, but they can be. I do my whole side. I close my side. I have help from other residents just to close, but like I dissect the breast out and do everything. And Ying's at that point already as a second year doing his own stuff too. In terms of bigger cases, when you get into the deep flaps, you start out assisting with the dissection and closing, right? So like you help, it's essentially closing a panty with a fascial defect. So you close the fascia, you put potentially a mesh or not mesh in, and then you close the belly like a panty abdominoplasty. So the juniors are doing that while the seniors are up top working on the micro with the attending. I have been this year more and more responsible for helping with the micro. So I am assisting with the micro. I am helping, I'm basically doing the vein anastomoses and helping assist with the arterial anastomoses. And I'm getting closer and closer to, I think, actually doing the suturing myself. I do tie the knots on the anastomoses now, which is new. I help cut, tie, set up everything. But once they feel comfortable, they progressively get you into the position of being like, the attending. So our most senior resident, Chris, is doing the anastomoses as the attending and the attending is basically his assistant. I will say we generally don't have you start doing really much of the micro with the attending until you're a three. We have been working on a micro course that we've been doing this year because we had another micro course. Actually, that was another way rotation we did. We went to Kentucky for a week in Louisville and did a micro course, but that got canned with COVID. So we've actually designed our own micro course, which we're getting all the junior residents to come, come in and work on vessels under the scope. And that I think is allowing people to get into the micro earlier. So now we have three, four, five, and six all doing micro. But with that being said, usually the five and the six are the ones that are doing the true suturing, which is the the grand slam of micro, I guess you could say, and dissecting out the flap. Chris will dissect out a flap. I've been tasked to dissect out parts of the flap. They trust me to dissect out vessels, like find the perforators. But it's all dependent on the attendings. They all decide 
what they want you to do and how far. But I think once they get comfortable, you really have a ton of autonomy here at Dartmouth. And it's not unchecked. They don't leave the room and they're like, okay, do the whole case, bye. But they do let you do the case if they trust you. Let's talk about research a little bit. So what are the research kind of expectations and then like opportunities and what kind of supports available for once you have done some research? I would say that we do get a lot of autonomy in terms of dictating what we want to do for research. The expectation is to each year be involved with some scholarly activity, and that can take the shape of many different forms. I personally, as an intern, really didn't do too much in terms of chart reviews or you know hardcore research, but this year I've picked up a lot of ancillary projects, and there's a lot of stuff floating around that, depending on what your academic interests are. Like we don't have dedicated like research elective or anything like that. But for example, like some of the things that I'm working on personally this year, like I'm doing a lot of peripheral nerve stuff. I'm working on like a book chapter with Dr. Rosen for motor nerve transfers in the upper extremity. I'm also working with an attending who, Dr. Eloth Erickson, who actually was, I think, chair of plastic surgery at Harvard. He actually lives around the area. So he's been <laughs> mentoring me a little bit and working on a couple of wound papers with him just regarding like a database of various different wounds. There certainly are plenty of opportunities to get involved with research, but I wouldn't say that Chris Lee, one of our more senior residents, he's not very fond of research. He's involved with certain things, but he's very proud of the fact that he doesn't have to do that much research to still be a plastic surgery resident. They don't have a strict requirement around like you're going to do two papers a year or you're going to take a year off. I know some programs take time off. I'm applying for a study fellowship. And so I think it depends on your goals. If you want to do like a craniofacial micro fellowship, I think it maybe it's a little bit more needed. Or if you just enjoy research, I've done a couple of things here. I have a case report that I submitted with a med student that we're just waiting to see if it's accepted. But like I said, I want to do aesthetic surgery. So I don't think it's as necessary. And I don't necessarily want to do a ton of research. I'll do some, but I'm not like, go hung, like going to go give a year up of my life to do it. But that's like kind of the beauty of this place is that they don't require anything. They would love if you did, you know, something, but there's not like this huge push where they're saying you have to do three papers or we're going to not write you out as recommendation, this and that. I think it's very open to whatever you want to do. And there's plenty of resources and people around to do it. There are attendings who try to do more research than others. And I think they have a requirement, but they don't force it on us. And it, it makes the experience more comfortable to do what you want to do with your honestly, with your life and uh, your career. So I, there's plenty of people who take years off and then don't necessarily need that research and they've lost years of their life in terms of time and income. They don't do that to us here. So it's I think it's nice because you have the opportunity to do it if you want. If you don't want to do it, it's not, you know, make you feel bad about it. It's a good mix. And is there any support available like to present at conferences? The conferences have been very limited just because, of co again, COVID has like ruined everything. But they do provide you, I believe, a stipend for travel and like food and all that, if you do get a conference acceptance. I think that's pretty general for most residencies. I think maybe if you like you were doing 10 conferences, they'd be a little bit more. That's a lot of money. Usually residents get you know, a couple a year and they are more than happy to. I know there was a conference two years ago that was a micro conference that Dr. Green had talked about with me doing something before COVID. And he was like, oh, this would be a great conference to go to. We could present this and then it'd be a free, a free trip to Hawaii. And I was like, that sounds awesome. But they will cover conferences if you do get a legitimate acceptance it's just depending if the conference is going to be virtual I'm supposed to actually go to one in new york i think it was like the new england conference of plastic surgery and that was canceled in march of 2020 
And they were going to cover my travel expenses for that one, too. They do cover if you have a true conference. And are there any other perks you'd like to share? So I don't know about the loops. I got mine when I was at my other program, but they do a $300 a year. And that's what it's now. It's $300 a year stipend for anything educational. So you can use that to buy books. To I used it one year to get some noise canceling headphones to like use for tests and studying. You can use it for like anything. You want to use it for you know, some type of class you want to go to. As long as it's educational, it's very open to whatever you want to do. So they have that. Parking, they don't charge you for parking, which I know at some places they charge for parking, which is insane to me. That's just like not right. And our parking is not like a mile away from the hospital. You do walk like a quarter mile, but it's honestly, it's beautiful. And like you're walking through trees. It's cold now. So you do get a little chilly in the winter, but the parking's fine. They give you as a first year, some allotment for food money since you'll be technically in the hospital. And they give you like a very small amount for food money after that. But it's not really one needed because you're not really in the hospital overnight. Most nights, it's very rare. And two, I don't really like eating hospital food. I don't know. What do they do for the loops, Yang? Yeah, so it's 50% off. I think I got mine for four or 500 total. I bought the headlight on my own, but it's like you said, uh, the 300. At least my first year I used towards a laptop. There's also like a lot of free food in residency. So that's good because like you'll have conferences and then like Friday, we have Friday conference, we get breakfast. When we do like our big educational sessions, we get Panera, pizza, whatever. So there's like free food here and there, which is nice. So you said you're building up your own micro course. Is that something that will be like one week out of the year? What does that look like? And any like cadaver labs too? We can't really devote a full week, a whole week on its own just because you're so busy with cases and it wouldn't work. And we used to go, like I said, to Louisville for a week and you would be the only person away. So it worked because you could devote your whole week to micro and then the rest of the service would be here. So what we're doing now is we have a one instructory lesson for like an hour and a half, like a lecture. And then every other class or lecture is down in our CSI, our Center for Surgical Innovation. It's this like amazing 3OR room that was funded with this crazy amount of money. And it has a real time, I think, CT MRI machine inside. So we do a lot of big, if you do a big case down there and you want to get like immediate post-op CT MRIs, you can get them on the OR table. The thing rides a track through the ceiling to get to the patient. So it's just like state-of-the-art facility. But because of that, we have, it was actually made also for things like cadaver labs and education. It was like part of the grant money was sent to do that. So it's dedicated to that also. So it's this great space that we use. We have our cadavers down there and we have been doing us four sessions this 2021, like fall to December, 2021, we've done four sessions and they've all been cadaver sessions where we start with two microscopes we get oxygen which is our nerve conduit reps and they give us these like practice nerve conduits that we use to suture and then we dissect out vessels from the extremities that we have and we use those to practice the different micro skills with different attendings so like each session has a couple different attendings proctoring so you get every attending has their own way of doing micro so you get different kind of lessons and pearls and techniques and then going into the new year we are Again, building up and designing the rest of the micro course, but it's going to be more labs downstairs. So it's really hands-on. It's not a lot of reading this book. It's like you have the micro instruments in your hands with the needles and the conduits or the blood vessels, and you're doing the micro with either another resident or an attending. And we're combining it with neurosurgery and ortho. So we actually have this kind of interdisciplinary thing going on with them where they come down and join us for the micro and get lessons in it also, which has been nice. It's been a a good mix of people. And what area of plastic surgery would you say you come out with the strongest experience in upon graduation? We do a lot of recon. And that being said, we do 
all recon. So a lot of places don't do head and neck recon. The ENTs guy resect and do the reconstruction. We do all the reconstruction for the most part. So they do the resection. We come in and we do all the flaps. And unless they're going to close it primarily, we do all the reconstruction for ENT, which is rare. It's like not a very common thing in plastic surgery programs. We do all the breast recon in terms of the deeps. We don't do any trams, the deep flaps and stuff like that. We do a lot of all the lower extremity recon with ortho. And then I, we actually got a pretty robust craniofacial here. Dr. Shin, our program director, is craniofacial trained. And we, we do a lot of cleft lip and palate, actually. And then two days ago, we had a craniosynostosis baby. We do a lot of craniosynostosis cases. We do a lot of bread and butter. We do a lot of, you know, breast reductions, ton of breast reductions, uh, abdominoplasties and panties. I'd say our weakest would be our aesthetics just because I think people want to go to a private practice in Boston or Manhattan and like less want to come to an academic center for their aesthetics. We do it. It's just the one we do the least of, I'd say. But we do a lot of bread and butter, which is important for when you get out and you're starting as a surgeon in the community because you're going to be doing a lot of bread and butter cases until you can either work your aesthetic volume up or if you want to go do a micro fellowship, like we get so much experience, we're, we're doing the micro before the fellowship. Just echo what Mike said. I think in terms of pr- probably our strongest area of focus is like microsurgery and just pet to toe reconstruction. Like Mike said, I think we do um, reconstructive surgery for every part of the body from face all the way down. I know having rotated at other places when I was still like a medical student doing my sub eyes, I felt like a lot of the microsurgery at least felt more like deep centered and occasional like flap here or there. But I, we do like lower extremity recon with with our attendings here all the time. Dr. Freed gets a lot of referrals from orthopedic surgeons. We, I think we did like, well, we, we did a really complex lower extremity ALT free flap to like the knee guy who had a previous gastroc that failed just like a couple of weeks ago. And like a lot of reverse surls and pretty complicated lower extremity reconstruction. Like Mike said, we do all the head and neck reconstruction here. We're doing lymphovenous surgery. We're doing everything. We're doing a ton of transgender. The only thing we don't do, like I said, is the replants and the big burn. I think that's like really the only thing that we don't do. Honestly, we do everything under the sun here. If you could estimate like how many free flaps a week? At least, I'd say two a week. Usually one head and neck and one somewhere else. Some days I know we've done, I think our record, or the record that I can remember this year has probably been four or five. I think I've been on weeks where we've had five or six is what I can remember as like the most. We've had weeks where we have none. There's plenty of times where we've had no free flaps in a week. But usually on days when we have no free flaps, like Dr. Negrini or or Dr. Freed, usually they'll just supplement that with uh, four or five like medium level cases back to back so they're still busy on those days yeah that being said if it's not a free flap we do reverse surls and gastrocs and other types of recons that technically aren't micro but they're still reconstruction cases they don't take as long as these micro cases but yeah i think saying one to two on average at least a week is safe and they're a mix i think i'd say we do probably the most be head and neck we do a lot of head and neck recon they're just cutting out big tumors left and right they need meat to go up there to cover bone and holes and so they're calling us in for all those and then we do deeps we do a good amount of deeps we're not doing like a deep every week but sometimes we'll have one deep sometimes we'll have two deeps typically we have two surgeons that do the deeps here and they go back and forth one's a female one's a male surgeon so depending on what the patients want hit or miss with surgeons doing a lot of deeps and we do a lot of breast recon too we do a lot of expander to implants here so it's a mix and how would you improve your program? I'm biased. I, I like 100% say that I like 
coming from where I was, which I, I got great training and I learned a lot. Granted, I wanted to be a plastic surgeon. So I think like I'm happier just because I'm in a plastic surgery program now. But I think we have an awesome program and there's a lot of good stuff going on here. I think we have a great call schedule life. We I love where I live. This is an amazing place to live. I You cannot be like living in an area like this. There's so much to do. And our work schedule allows us to enjoy it. We're a small program, so you can't hide, which is good or bad, depending if you want to hide or if you're like a good resident or bad resident. But I think we have a good group. We all honestly get along. I can tell you when I was a bigger program before, I wasn't like that necessarily. And there was infighting and like issues. But I think we have a great group of people from our residents to our APPs to our faculty and our attendings. I think we have an amazing exposure to cases here. Like I said, I do my own, either do my own side or I do the case. I feel like I can do so much more now. Um, and I'm not even done. I still have a year and a half to go. And I feel like if you tell me to go do a breast reduction, I'd be like, okay, let's go do it. I'd say the only thing that I, I wish, and this is like acting actively being worked on, is I wish that we had more aesthetic surgery, which is why I want to do an aesthetic surgery fellowship because I, when I'm done, I want to be in private practice and I want to be predominantly aesthetic surgery driven. And so I think even if we had a lot of aesthetic surgery, I would potentially do another, I would do a fellowship just because of the business aspect of it. We're in an academic center and not a private practice and there's, it's a different world. Like you just don't know what you don't know when you get out in certain things. And so I think it'd be nice to just have the experience of more aesthetic surgery. That being said, we, like I said, Dr. Shin is very open to trying to make that work and be more robust. And before COVID, we were working on that actively. COVID has changed the game and we've had to adjust differently and traveling has been more challenging and going different places. But I think that would be my biggest thing that I would want to change or work on. But it's not something that's a detriment to your education here. You do aesthetic surgery. It's just, I want more. I would agree with Mike. I enjoy aesthetic surgery broadening that exposure a little bit if we're able to establish a rotation at Manchester where we would get exposure to more aesthetic cases and get those numbers up. I feel like other than burn reconstruction, I feel like the program's pretty well-rounded. Otherwise, I really don't have any other complaints. I'd just reiterate all the things that Mike said about the positive work environment. I think because it is a smaller program, like Mike said, you can't really hide per se, but I think it's like a double-edged sword. I think uh, one of the really nice pros of that is that we operate with um, the same attendings every week, and we're not operating with the same attending every single day, but uh, you establish that trust, the, you build up that rapport with your attending, and uh, as you progress through the years, they're, they become more and more comfortable with you. They're aware of your skill set, what you're able to do, and they really work with you at your level. If you show that you've mastered like one portion of the case, like they'll certainly sit down with you and try to keep pushing the envelope and trying to get you better and better to give you that operative autonomy like Mike was saying. So I think that's definitely one of the pros of being in a smaller program that I didn't maybe appreciate as much having come from Maryland. If you're a person who like needs to be on a certain rotation, like you're like, I want to be blocked off. Like this month, I want to just do craniofacial. This month, I want, I want to do hand. Like this may be a challenge for you because you can go literally do a lymphovenous bypass, a hand fracture, a breast reduction an AUG, and a lower shirt recon all on the same day. So you need to know the anatomy for all those things, right? Like you need to know what's going on. And like, that, I think that's great training. That makes you on your toes. But other people may be like, oh, I like to be blocked off. And that may not be for you. So now I would love to hear about your program leadership. So your chief and your PD. So Dr. Shin is, I freaking love Dr. Shin. We sit down with the first Monday of every month to sort of go over our progress things that are going well, things that are that we have concerns about, or it's just really an opportunity to have 
open discussion about like our progress and in terms of he always goes over if we have any specific goals how specific rotations are going if there's like anything that he, he can do to help us reach our career goals or anything that we could do from a work-life balance standpoint to you know, get us to where we need to be or if there's anything that he can help out with so i think Dr. Shin has been phenomenal in that regard. I feel very well supported by all the faculty and staff, obviously the residents as well, but I think our relationship with Dr. Shin is very, it's, I haven't had like that many mentors in my life. In terms of the best mentors that I've ever had, I, I would say Dr. Shin is up there. From college to now, I can think of two people that I would think of as like people who really brought me to the next level and really embodied like the definition of like mentorship. In all its lights, I think Dr. Shin is bar none. He's up there. He cares a lot about the residency program, and he meets with us all individually. And he's really helped the Dartmouth-Hitchcock Plastic Surgery Residency become better You know, every single day that he's been program director. And he, he's been PD for as long as ever since I started, and so I have nothing but good things to say about him. He's technically chief of the division, actually. And then we have the, like the overall head of the surgery department, which is Sandra Wong. But she's like a surgical oncology. She runs all of the surgical departments here. But Dr. Shin is technically, I think, the chief. I had great mentorship when I was at Mayo. I have a few people over there that I still talk to in both plastics and general surgery that changed my life. And I want to keep them in my life. So I talk to them. And Dr. Shin is somebody that I say it's the same thing. Like, I, I will talk to Dr. Shin when I'm done. If I have a problem, I'll call him first. Just because he's like the most approachable person. And he's just so nice. And even if he doesn't have an answer right away, he'll get back with you just talking with him, not even solving the problem, but just like talking with him, I think helps. I've never been around a person that's just been so good besides a few people at Mayo to me and been such a, like an advocate. He's such an advocate for what you want to do. And I know like some places, if you say, I want to do aesthetics or I want to do handers or that, they're like, oh, boo, like poo poo to that. Like you should do microsurgery. Here, it's not like that. He's like, whatever you want to do, let me get you there. Let me see what I can do to help you. Who do I need to talk to you for or talk to for you? What can you get involved with to, to get to that position? I agree. He's been nothing but like the best to us. And COVID's put a strain on, I think, everybody. And he's definitely felt the strain from the hospital in terms of trying to figure out cases and like elective cases and being productive. And that's taken some of his attention away. But I think overall, he's been just absolutely outstanding to all of us. And then I, I, one thing I, I remember now about perks. So when I was at Mayo, we didn't have our own offices. We had what we called the cave and it was like a hallway of computers and we didn't have enough computers for, for residents, which is not uncommon. Here we have our own offices. So I have an office with two other people, but it's like my, I have my own desk, my own computer, my own space that no one else uses unless I'm gone and they need it. But, and then Ying and Chris have their office and then another resident has their own office. So we have dedicated plastic surgery resident offices, which nowhere else in this hospital has, I think, their own offices besides, like, maybe general surgery, and it's six or eight people in a room. It's not this, like, nice little setup. So we have, like, dedicated offices, which I think is actually a huge benefit because it allows you to have a space at your own, do your work, have your computer, you can put your stuff somewhere safe. It's You don't realize how important it is until you actually have it. Like, I didn't know when I was at Mayo how important having an office was, and I got here, and I was like, wow, this is, like, a huge benefit. And you also feel like, you feel like a professional. You feel like a, a doctor. Like, you're like, okay, I'm not some like medical student that has nothing besides putting my bag on someone else's chair. I think it's a huge benefit that I, I didn't know until I had it. I was like, wow, this is great. We have a futon in ours. I've crashed on it a few times when I've been called in late for a consult or something and I needed to round the next morning. Yeah, one time I walked in, Ying slept past his alarm. We were on call together, he slept past his alarm. And uh, 
We were around, he had six, and I walked in, and he had, like, gentle playing music in his office, and I had to wake him up abruptly and say, it's time to go. It's a true story. Do you have any examples of times when you, like, brought up an issue to Dr. Shin and how he addressed it? When I was on my vascular surgery rotation, there were some issues with the work hours, and I had some concerns about how certain residents were being treated on that rotation. And I'd mentioned a couple of like the instances or brought up some of my concerns with Dr. Shin, and he took them very seriously. He went to the program director on the vascular surgery side right away and sat down with them and just escalated. And so like going along with what I was saying earlier, like he really does have our best interests at heart. And if you bring something to his attention and note a concern, like he, he will make a note of it and try to address it. I think he takes our opinions and comments like very seriously. That's probably like the most recent example that I can think of. The other one that I can think of is having mentioned that I had interest in potentially doing an elective railway rotation later on as a more senior resident in China. He was all about it, barring COVID and everything, but he was uh, very supportive. I was like, oh yeah, that'd be like great. We can certainly arrange for you to do that. We can start working on designing a plan and just like very receptive, open, and nothing but good, positive things to say. I think the way to think about it is not just Dr. Shin, but I think in general, like program directors have a lot on their plates. And so if you can resolve a problem without going to the top on your own, like one, you should be able to, at this point, you're an adult, but two, it like looks better on you and it, it takes the strain out of them in getting involved. But that being said, if there is a legitimate issue and it's like something like Ying said that you personally cannot go up to the head of Vasco and be like, you guys are not being fair to us. Dr. Shin has no problem stepping in. So if you can resolve something on your own, great. Like that'd be the best ideal world. But if you can't, or if it's like a legit issue that you need some power or somebody to advocate for you, like Dr. Shin pulls the trigger without question. Like he is not afraid to like say, this is not okay. He takes ownership over us. He's like, these are my residents. I take care of them. You cannot do stuff to them without like me knowing and it being fair to them. So he's not afraid to go out of his way to make sure things are right for us. Yeah, I just remembered another example. So we do one month on trauma with general surgery as PGY2s. And I think at one point they were trying to get Rice or me to do, he's a PGY3 resident here. They were trying to get me to do like an extra month. And Dr. Shin caught wind of it immediately and just sent like a short email to Dr. Rosencrantz. It's like, they're just doing this, this one month and that's how it's going to be. All right. No. <laughs> Email me if you have any concerns or whatever. That's, that's just how it, yeah, goodbye. <laughs> goodbye. <laughs> Guess what? I only did a month of trauma. And how would you say your program promotes diversity and inclusion? If you look at like our group of residents, we're all different to begin with. I'm a Caucasian male, very boring, but I'm a Caucasian male. Shen is our PGY1. He's from New York City, but his family's from China. I was born in China, I live in Sweden. It's just complicated. I've been all over the place. Raisa was born in Peru, speaks Spanish, always makes flan when we have parties. Nina's our fourth year. She was born in India. She came from India to start college here, which is kind of crazy. So we have two females, four males. And then Chris Lee, our chief, is from Boston. His family's mixed Chinese-Caucasian. So we have a really diverse group. People speak different languages here also. And it's very like welcoming. Nobody feels like comfortable with like their, I think, their background or their history. And then in terms of the patients here, like I said, we're in the woods. So we have a very like homogenous population for the most part. Like our population is usually Caucasian. The Dartmouth community is very, very 
different compared to the community outside of Dartmouth. The Dartmouth community is much more diverse. There is a huge swing for diversity over there. And so I know when I treat Dartmouth students, I've had students from all different walks of life and backgrounds. But the patient population itself generally is a good mix of male, female. It's not like one of the other, other, but I will say it's mostly Caucasian and education level is very different. Like some are professors at Dartmouth with all these like degrees and, and PhDs and MDs, whatever. And then we have the people in the backwoods that are like blowing their hands off with wood chippers. So I'd say that's like the diversity of our population and our residency. And then the department itself does a ton of our grand rounds. I'd say ever since all these kind of social issues have come up in the last couple of years has been a lot of diversity talks. So they're definitely honing in on that as a group and a practice for the overall organization. We do have talks outside of diversity, but I'd say that they've had more of a push to include diversity in both residency and in patient care in our talks. And then we have like our own talks about other stuff in our plastics department in terms of education. I'd say like the diversity of the faculty as well as the residents at the hospital is fairly diverse. And I think we have people from all walks of life, but as Mike mentioned, the patient population is more racially homogenous as a whole, like more Caucasian, I would say. But that's not to say that we don't get the occasional um, like skier from some faraway land with injured orthopedic injuries or soft tissue defects, et cetera. Um, I'd say there's no lack of diversity as far as like faculty residence goes. And now if you could talk a little bit about the kind of culture and relationships amongst the residents. I think with COVID, everything's been a little bit switched up in like Dr. Shin. I think when COVID was getting better, we were starting to ramp up like social activities a bit more. Mike was, he had plans to do like a golf outing and some, you know, there was a plan for bakery thing and like more organized activities. But Dr. Shin was a little concerned about like social gatherings you know, with certain numbers of people. So we had to nix a lot of those. From that standpoint, things have been disrupted. But I'd say we do try to get together from time to time when there are like lulls or things that are less busy. We just got together a couple weeks ago and did a dinner with everybody. Like this year, it was just a couple of weeks ago. Our chief, Chris, lives at a really nice house, like maybe a 20-minute drive away from the hospital, and he hosted us. I like made a bunch of stuff for dumplings, and I was showing other people <laughs> how to like make dumplings and stuff, and we had a little potluck. I think people brought like various beverages, and Mike brought his kids. That was a nice get-together. Before that, there was another event. A little while back where uh, I think Chris had made like linguine noodles or something and Mike had made his uh, world-renowned spaghetti sauce <laughs> and meatballs and brought like a charcuterie board and stuff like that. So we got together and did some of that. But I think it has been a little bit difficult with COVID. And also Mike has two twins, two little kids running around <laughs> that are quite a handful. Nina recently just gave birth. And so she's been taking care of the little one as well. I think they've been pretty preoccupied, but as I was telling like last night, I was hanging out with some of the general surgery residents. We got together and played Jackbox TV, or just caught up and just I do that pretty frequently too. We're not avoiding each other. Like I think other places, yeah. one, there's so many, it's, you don't even know half your residents, honestly. Like some programs have so many, it's, you don't even know who people are, which is not us, who everybody is very well. And I think programs don't have that cohesiveness where they even want to see each other outside of work. It's like, I have to work with you and that's it. But we don't feel that at all. Like we enjoy hanging out, but it's not like there's pressure to, like Ying said, I have two one-year-old twins and it, there's not pressure to be like, why aren't you doing stuff with us? We all have our own lives and then we find time to make something happen. Great. We have stuff to going on. Great. 
there's no ill will either way, but we do like to see each other and do stuff. So it's just like being said, COVID is throwing a wrench in everything and it becomes challenging when you're trying to figure out stuff. Institutional wise, we can't really do much. I was like planning a lot of stuff for the last two years and they all got wrecked off the books when you're not when you're not doing institutional stuff and you just want to hang out. That's not a problem just as long as you guys are being safe with whatever you're doing COVID wise, but they're not stopping us from doing that and we are doing it. We're we're just living our lives and also hanging out together. So it's it's a mix. In terms of like our rapport, I think they get along really well with everybody on the team, residents, APPs alike. And I don't know, anytime like Mike and I are operating together, like we're usually talking about the office. I'm usually ripping on his uh, technical skills and him suturing too slowly and stuff like that. But I think that requires like a certain level of comfort. If I wasn't comfortable with Mike, I wouldn't be able to like trash on him in the OR and stuff like that. But I do frequently. Could you list one to three qualities of a resident who fits well in your program? You need to be okay with location here and enjoy. I think if you can enjoy like the outdoors, enjoy like a slower pace of life, this will be an awesome place for you. I think if you want to be in like Manhattan, that's this is not Manhattan. This is not Chicago. So I think that can make a big difference in your quality here and your enjoyment. I'd say we're busy and enjoy the craziness of the day. I We can have... 20 cases going in a day or we could have two cases. So you have to be okay with variability and especially variability with cases because you could be doing, like I said, many different things in a day. I think you need to be okay with being in a small group. I think I like being in a small group. I, I think people get to know you really well. And like I said, you can't hide, but that is not for everybody. And and I think if you're a person who likes to really get to make relationships and not move from place to place very quickly, not go to a million different hospitals and be in one hospital and know everybody, I think this is the place for you. Do most residents own or rent? It's a mix. Half and half, I'd say. Yeah, the housing market's like pretty pretty challenging these days because a lot of people from out of town have bought properties up here, especially during COVID. And like a lot of people, like wealthier people from, I think, New York, Manhattan, like just straight up bought up a lot of the properties. So I think there's certainly been a need for housing up here, but I'd say it's pretty half and half. I bought my condo when I first moved here. Chris owns his place. Nina owns hers. So I think it's it's a one to one. It's four to two. I rent a house, a three bedroom, two and a half bath house. Raisa also rents an apartment. I had a house in Florida when I was a resident because I thought I was going to be there for five years. So I ended up selling my home down there. I tried to buy my house up here before COVID, but I couldn't negotiate the price down to what was reasonable. So I ended up getting a long term lease in the house I tried to buy. But if I could, I would have bought the house. So I'd say before COVID, it was probably more buying. But with COVID, prices have become absolutely insane. So I don't know in the future what that's going to be for residents, but it's a mix. You can do both here. There's houses to rent, there's houses to buy, there's apartments to rent, apartments to buy. And how long is your commute on average? I'm here in 10 to 12 minutes flat. It's like I take literally like back roads. I never go on a highway. I go through a small town. It's like amazing. Commute's incredible. I have literally timed it. If I wear like uh, scrubs of my own, Door to door, like less than 10 minutes. I can be in the ED if I really wanted to, probably within seven minutes. I'd say most people live within maybe like a 10, 15 minute drive. Our um, chief lives about 20 minutes away. He's in Vermont, technically. But it's, it's really nice out there. It's a beautiful place. He wants to keep his house when he's done as like a second home, vacation home. So it works. That's probably the most challenging is if you get a call in the middle of the night and you're 20 minutes away. Like that's painful. You're not fighting traffic and he's 20 minutes at most. So it's not terrible. Most of like 10 minutes within the radius. And I know you mentioned at least two residents have kids. So beyond that, are there any other residents with kids? And what's the breakdown of people being like married or single? 
I'm married with twins. Nina is married with a four or five month old. Ying is on the prowl. Chen Shen has, I believe, a girlfriend that is out of town in New York. Chris Lee is engaged to his partner. That's the chief. And then Raisa, I believe, is also single. So it's a big mix of people that are either in relationships, married, engaged, and single. It's all over the board. And how supportive is the program of residents with kids? Like, I had no problems. They were like, whatever time you need. I mean, my wife's pregnancy was complicated because of the twins. She had some issues during birth after. My kid was in the NICU for six days, I think. And I ended up taking off paternity leave for a couple of weeks. And then I got another week I used for vacation off. But they said, whatever you need, do it. You are not responsible for anything here. And they were like, more support than I could have ever imagined. Our insurance here is amazing. As of now, they cover like everything. So like my wife's pregnancy with two kids costs nothing, which is like unheard of, I feel like. And to this day, like if I have a doctor's appointment with the kids that I just tell them and they're like, go, there's no question about what's important or prioritizing surgery over my kids. I try not to let it get in the way of what I'm doing at work. But if I have to do something, I have to do something. And Nina the same way. If she needs to go pump or do whatever she has to do, there's nobody complaining or questioning it. It's go do it when you can come back. So kids are not a problem here. And is it necessary to have a car? Yes. Uber, I don't know if it exists up here. I haven't used an Uber up here, to be honest. You would not get an Uber in the middle of the night. Unless you live like in Hanover, you could walk around Hanover. Like all the towns are really small here. and um, But like they're miles apart. And in the winter, you're not going to walk in 10 degree weather. It was like 10 degrees here the other day. Like you're not walking in 10 degree weather from one town to the next. And you have to come in the middle of the night for a call. Like you need a car. There's stuff that's walking distance, but I wouldn't say that I'd walk in the middle of the night in the winter. So I think a car is necessary. And what do you like about where you live? So even though I'm from Florida, I love the winter in terms of like the winter sports. I'm a skier, so I love skiing. I know being snowboard. We went last year out to the Dartmouth Skiway, which is the mountain, the College Owns. We went down the slopes there. I really enjoy that. I enjoy golf. I enjoy the outdoor hiking. So I love the mountains. I love it all. I think living up here is just the outdoors is amazing. But you have to be able to get into that stuff, I think, to really enjoy it. But there's also like plenty of farm to table restaurants and farmers markets and concerts and culture and art. There's lots of there's lots of stuff up here with Dartmouth. If I could sum it up in two words, I'd probably say like cozy vibes. Very like Hallmark winter card greeting card kind of thing. Sounds kind of cliche, but it's certainly like just yesterday as an example, like we just got together, played Quiplash, all the random Jackbox TV games. We're sipping on various cocktails and just like watching like dumb shows and stuff and just like candles and solid mood lighting i'd say that sort of encapsulates at least my experience with the upper valley like during the summer springtime people like go take dips in the lake go on hikes it's like a big part of life up here i mountain bike a little bit during the winter time i got like a snowboard or ski pass for icon i have a good group of people that I go with. I've been with Mike to like the ski way. I think we're planning on going a couple of other places, assuming that we were allowed to to ski and snowboard this season with COVID. The slopes are open. They're not holding back. They're not holding back. All right. I think those are the things you do. And when it gets a little bit colder, I think Dr. Shanker and one of our other attendings was thinking about hosting a winter cocktail party at her place. Dr. Matthew has like a nice little estate and he has a bunch of like apple trees in his backyard and we made homemade apple cider, and he he's brewing some alcoholic cider currently that he was gonna he's gonna share with us at some point as soon as it's done brewing. You gotta remember up here, this is like where people vacation. 
don't think you can say that a lot of places. Like we literally live in a place where people vacation for all four seasons, which is as a resident, I think your quality of life, you don't realize your quality of life until one, your program allows you to enjoy stuff outside of work, which some programs you're busier than others. And then two, I'm not saying we're not busy. We're very busy, but we've got a good balance. And two, you got to live in a place that you enjoy. So I like Florida in certain parts, but there's other parts I don't enjoy. And I liked where I, I, the house I lived in Florida, but I didn't enjoy the city I was in per se, like I do here. Like I love the area and people come here for all four seasons to vacation. So we're like in a vacation land. So it's different. It's not, you guys remember like all these programs come in different styles and flavors. And I think that's a huge thing is the quality of life you have outside of work. And if you don't enjoy the work you're in, you can get a good quality of life outside, then that's awesome. But if you don't enjoy the work you're in and the quality of life outside is terrible, then like that's a whole nother situation that I think is hard to go three to seven years in. So you got to really enjoy where you live. And I think that's, we're in a special place with, we live on vacation. I think that was some great final thoughts about kind of your program and the process of choosing a residency. Any last pieces of advice or any other thoughts you'd like to share? It's requirements like the office to come here. And again, this goes back to the benefit of being in another program. As an applicant, it's really hard to understand like what a program is about, right? Like you do your interview and it's even harder now because of COVID, everybody's doing online. So it's like really challenging to get a feel for what a program is. And I think there's plenty of great programs out there. And I think there are programs that have lots of stuff to work on. I think you have to like understand what you want in a program. And I know like for me, like I didn't want to be in a program. I didn't know this until after I got through all this, that I would be doing trauma for half of my life as a resident. Like I think that's a big thing. I think you don't understand how important the call schedule is until you like get into it. But I think you want a place that has a reasonable call schedule. I think you need to understand what makes you happy and where you live. And if you want to be, like I said, in a big city, that's great. Like more power to you. But if you want to be in a place that's not as big and a little calmer, then I think this is more at that speed. And you have to like understand that. And obviously you don't get to pick where you go to a certain extent, right? You make a list and then where that list tells you where you go. But I think you should really, when you start considering how you're going to rank, your programs, you have to think about these things, decide what's going to be important to you because these are long years and you're with the same people for a long time and you're doing the same thing for a long time. And if you want to be in a program, like I said, that you can hide and be one in a million, then go to that program. But if you want to get more relationships and maybe better mentorship and a closer mentorship with your leaders and your attendings, I think that's another thing to think about too. So I think at the end of the day, you have to really Try to find out what you think is going to make you happy and ask those questions in the interview. And they may not tell you the truth, and they may. You know, and I'm, we're being completely candid in, in what we're saying, and I'm not holding anything back at all. But I think you should, when you go into your interviews, really think about what you want. Where do you want to live? What type of pace of life do you want to live? What type of program do you want to be in? Do you want to be a program that does a ton of trauma? Then go to that program. If you don't, then like look for programs that you're not doing a ton of trauma. Like Ying said, we can do doing a ton of trauma rotations because that's not going to be to us beneficial. But that could be a program that you go to that they do a ton of trauma call. And that's how they do their gen surge there when you're an intern. So think about those things and really maybe write them down and try to find those programs that knock off the most important parts of your list because they're going to make a big difference in your life. That being said, you're going to graduate if you work hard, but it's going to be a much more enjoyable time if you can find a place that you can knock off all those points uh, that are important to you. And how could interested applicants find out more about your program? We do update our Instagram. Nina and I have been sort of posting uh, photographs about everyday activities here and there, but that's just gives you like a snapshot. I've had I people contact like... me through email, people yeah. from my own institution at FSU that either have had interviews or are applying for plastics. And I'm happy to talk with them over the phone or through text and explain stuff, whatever questions they got. And Sarah Bloom is our program coordinator, and she's reached out to a couple of us in the past. 
I think to Ying and I about medical school applicants asking questions and wanting to talk to somebody and she'll just send their information to us and we'll contact them. If they really want, they can reach us through that. Otherwise, the internet, our website is one source though. It's hard, like I said, to gauge through the website. And then we have an Instagram, like Ying said. So those are like probably the best ways to either learn something or get in touch with us. Mike, Ying, it was wonderful speaking with you and thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thanks so much for having us. Thank you for listening to the Doctority Plastic Surgery Podcast. Never miss an episode by subscribing to our show via your favorite podcast service and following us on Instagram and Twitter. For more podcast episodes and residency information, check out our website, doctority.co. That's doctority.co. We love feedback from listeners, so please contact us through the website or through social media with your questions or suggestions. See you next time.